Now hear God's holy word from 1 John chapter 3, just one verse, uh, verse 24, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and get the part that leads up to it. But now hear this. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's give thanks for God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you as on this day we rejoice in your triune nature that you have presented yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have existed co-eternally as three persons from all time. And so help us as we press further and further into understanding how uh, you have created and loved and redeemed us through uh, the each each person of of the, the Godhead, each person of the Trinity. So Father, fill us with this knowledge and fill us with your spirit today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may all be seated. With so many churches broadcasting and live streaming their services over the past few months, it's given me an opportunity to go look at what other churches around the country are doing, what, what some of my friends are doing around the country, and also what some of my family members, what kind of teaching they're getting typically on Sunday mornings in their churches. And there have been some good things, but there's also been some things that I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't really know that that's, that's what was going on in various corners of the church. Now, I don't want to be a, an accuser of the brethren. I want to be careful, but in order to be a reformer and in order to speak the truth in love, we have to point out real deficiencies in the body of Christ and call us all to repentance. If we're one body of Christ, any deficiency or defect or anything that needs to be changed is something we all uh, must own and take responsibility for. And one thing that I'm finding over and over is that a lot of churches talk about God, a lot of ministers talk about God, a relationship with God, knowing God, worshiping God, experiencing God, but the name of Jesus is pretty scarce. Direct references to the Holy Spirit in some corners of the church are, are even more scarce. There's not much clear definition even of God as the Father. Certainly no explicit prayers or, or songs, hymns, or references to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's almost as if the word God is a placeholder for whatever you want to put there. Maybe if uh, we just say God, you can fill that with any meaning that you want to. Maybe it's the man upstairs. Maybe it's the generic God of American civil religion. You know, the God on the money, uh, whatever God that that's naming. Uh, maybe uh, maybe you think of some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who is nice and gives things to good boys and girls but never requires anything of you, never acts in judgment. It, it could be the same God they pray to down at the synagogue or down at the down at the mosque, whoever and whatever that is, just the generic God that we speak of and sing to and worship. One video stream that I watched this past week, I got deep into it. It was about an hour long, and I went through all the music, through all the prayers, through all the preliminaries, about 36 minutes into it before the name of Jesus was mentioned for the first time. And even then, it wasn't a reference to Jesus as king or Jesus as savior, but Jesus as friend which is fine. Jesus in John 15, he calls us his friends. I'm not denying that Jesus is a friend. He certainly is. But, but even then it was, it, it landed with a little soft uh, thud instead of the real impact that I think you and I are used to and looking for when we talk about the king of creation, the ruler of all things. That's who Jesus is primarily. But it, but it convicted me and it gave me the resolve 
as long as the Lord Jesus allows me to remain in ministry, I will never do that. You will never sit through a worship service that I lead. You will never sit through a sermon without direct and repeated references to the God of creation who has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in eternity, equal in glory, and equal in power. It's safe to say, however, that the modern church is largely indifferent to the doctrine of the Trinity. I've been in more than one cooperative effort with other churches and with other pastors who are trying to identify who we are and, and how we're to work together and what are the bounds of our, our fellowship. And I, I propose, I always propose that we limit the boundaries of our fellowship to Trinitarian churches. And in response to that, anytime I bring that up, I get horror and shock and incredulity that, that I would even propose such a thing. Why, how, how can you say we can only be Trinitarian? Because that excludes the Mormons and that excludes the Oneness Pentecostals. And I mean, the Trinity, come on. It's such an esoteric, uh, inexplicable, arcane point of doctrine. Why would we want to make that a point of demarcation or even <gasps> division? Oh, we can't do that. Well, the answer to that question, why make such a big deal about the doctrine of the Trinity, is that the Trinity is an essential doctrine because that's who the God we worship is. That's his identity. That's how you know you are worshiping the living God. The God of creation is the triune God. The living God is the triune God. He's the only God who can save. He's the only God who can heal and deliver and rule and administer justice in the world. The only God who can do any of that is the triune God. If you aren't worshiping the God who has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you aren't worshiping the living God. You are worshiping an idol. The doctrine of the Trinity is what separates the living God from uh, false gods. And the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us principally that God has from eternity existed in community. God, the God that we worship, the God that we adore, the God who has saved us, God has never been alone. God has never been lonely. God has never ever acted in a purely self-interested way, always out of love for other members of the Godhead. The persons of the Trinity have always existed in a harmonious covenant of mutual adoration, service, and exchanges of glory. How does this work? Well, the Son brings glory to the Father by obeying Him. The Father brings glory to the Son by rewarding Him for His obedience. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit on the earth to create and renew and fill mankind who then returns to Father and Son with the praise of all humanity and the praise of all creation on His lips. Each member of the Godhead dwells together and indwells the other. We hear Jesus throughout the Gospel speak of this often. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and then He prays to the Father, I am in you and you are in me. Each member of the Godhead indwells each other. They dwell with and in the other members of the Godhead in both covenant and community. Now, since God is and always has been himself a community, the definition of God is community, then we who are created in his image are also created in and for community. Our identity is found in our relationship to others. Our relationship with God then is located in the community of the Spirit, the body of Christ, where we are brought into the life and the communion of the Trinity. 
The Father has predestined us. The Son has died for us. The Holy Spirit seals us. God the Father has given us His law. The Son demonstrated how we're to obey and follow and given us an example of how to live and obey the Father. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be obedient to the Father and following the example of Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit then are our environment. They are our company, life, and, and joy and happiness and blessing are only found in the company of the Trinity. The Trinity, the triune God then, is the company we keep. And this, of course, incorporates the church, the body of Christ, which means that community, friendship, fellowship, life, these, these things, these are not uh, fringe needs. This is what we were created for. Life together, it's who we are. Life itself depends on life in community, and there are no satisfying substitutes for community. It's very frustrating to be isolated and be alone. We, we long for and we search for and we seek to be connected. Now, in the text from 1 John that I read just a few minutes ago, the apostle speaks to the fact that there are two kinds of communities. All men, whether they submit to Jesus or not, are drawn to community. Those who are submitted to Jesus long for lawful, loving communities. The church, the family, civil governments that are grounded in God's law, that's what we long for. Bonds of friendship and duty, that's what we want. That, those, those, those bonds that reflect the life of the Trinity. But heathens, unbelievers, who do not submit to Jesus, are still created in the image of God, so they feel the gravitational pull toward community but away from the Trinity, they form tribes and leagues and mobs and gangs and coalitions around whatever point of unity they can find that they can congregate around. And every one of these unions, every one of these coalitions eventually takes on a kind of liturgical religious character of its own. See, uh, Satan can't create, he can only imitate. Pagans can't create, they can only, they can only imitate what is, what is true. But they, in their imitation, in these coalitions and, and, and bonds of, of, of community that they create, they develop a kind of religion. They develop their own saints and prophets. They have their own sacraments, their own rules of purity. They have their own creeds and their own hymns, their sacrificial systems. They have their own plan of salvation and eschatology. And this is true for both the false religion of American statism and the false religion of progressive social justice, which are both devouring each other at present. But no matter how popular and no matter how influential these other false religious communities become, we must never participate in their liturgies. We must never wear their identity and their uniform. We must never placard their message because they preach a false gospel and they have no power to save and they have no power to heal or, or do anything other than confuse and corrupt. Trusting and following a false gospel can never give you eternal life. It can only damn you. You cannot have salvation or peace or forgiveness or restoration or sanity without the cross, without the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must have the communion and the fellowship and the community of the life of the Trinity over the, the, the false communities that are formed around other central thoughts and deeds and ideas.
We just read a section from John's first epistle where he defines two different communities. He defines the community of the triune God who he names in this section. He talks about the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and his Spirit in this section here. And he also names the children of the devil. Pick up in chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 John. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And then based on, based on that distinction of these two communities, children of God and children of the devil, he says in verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. They hate you the way that Cain hated Abel. Because Abel was truly righteous and Cain knew that he was righteous and Cain himself knew that he was only self-righteous and Cain knew that he was covetous and hateful and so he killed his brother. The interesting thing is that Abel is called righteous because he offered acceptable sacrifices to God, which is a demonstration of his sorrow over sin. Why was Abel righteous? Because he recognized his sin. Does that not sound incongruent on first glance? He's righteous because he has such an acute sense of his own sinfulness that he offers sacrifices to God to pray for forgiveness and fellowship. Now, now Cain does not understand sin, obviously. Abel's, Abel's righteousness is evident in his proper confession of sin, but Cain and all other children of the devil are puffed up in their own self-righteousness such that they never confess their own sin. They have no orderly mechanism for dealing with their guilt or any sins committed against them. They have no real economy of forgiveness. Not only can they never clearly isolate and identify sin, not in you, not in themselves. It's always this vague sense of injustice, the vague accusations of wrongdoing so that there's nothing concrete, there's nothing objective that can be done so as to make it right. In orderly, lawful, Trinitarian societies, we can deal with, with realities and punish realities as a society, but not for the sons of Cain and those like him, no amount of repentance is acceptable because there, there's never enough restitution, no act of justice that makes a difference because they have no sense of what's actually wrong to begin with, both in themselves and the ones that they're accusing. And as with Cain, sin crouches at the door ready to rule over them, as God told Cain. That's, that's why we have these convulsions that's why we have these times of insanity throughout history, because we are overrun with communities that are not a reflection of the triune community. I want to be clear, we do have a systemic problem, and that problem is human depravity. That's in all of humanity, not in just one segment of humanity. So there are two families, John says, two tribes, and you are either presently finding your joy and your community in the life of the triune God, or you are aligning with the company of the tribe of Cain, the children of the devil. And if you are not actively, deliberately leading your family into the friendship of the Trinity, you cannot help but find another tribe, and your kids will find another tribe. There's a warning in 1 Corinthians 15. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character. You will become like the people you associated with. 
So if you're in the company of the Trinity and the community of the Trinity, you will become like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you are in the company of and associate with revolutionaries and reactionaries and Jacobins, that's what you become. If you love tyrants and oppressors and autocrats, that's what you become. But John shows us the how we imitate this true community life of the Trinity here. First, in self-giving love for the brothers. And we're just going to cover this quickly. There's so many of you fanning and I know it's warm. So we're going to read this and I won't always show my work, but if you have any questions, please question, please, please ask me. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brothers abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever see, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, in the life of the Trinity, shows us that sacrifice is at the heart of the character of God. It's only in the fellowship of the Trinity that we see demonstrated the kind of love that everybody wants to participate in, at least they say they do, they, they want this kind of uh, sacrifice and giving and pouring out of yourself, but they can't accomplish it apart from the life of the triune God. But now in the community of the Trinity, I can love you and you can love me and we can serve each other because we are in Christ. I can pour myself out for you and you for me without incurring any debt. There's no scorekeeping. There's no quid pro quos because... That's not the way it works in the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity works to outdo the other in glory and love. Each member of the triune God effaces himself before the other, seeking not his own glory, but the glory of the other. The Father hears the Son and answers his prayers. The Son obeys the Father. The Spirit is sent forth from both the Father and the Son. Sacrifice is at the very fiber of the heart of God. So if we are to be godly, if we are to imitate our God, then we must participate in the active life of God, which is a sacrificial life. It is a life shaped by the cross. And the cross doesn't recruit spectators. We aren't an audience for the sacrificial acts of the members of the Trinity. Rather, in our baptism, we are grabbed and pulled into the Trinitarian actions of loving and giving and giving and giving. So first, the Trinity shows us that sacrifice is at the heart of this orderly community. And here's the another characteristic of this community that we are grounded in. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Relationship in and with the triune God is relationship founded upon God's law. The members of the Trinity are in an eternal lawful covenant with each other. And you and I are brought into that lawful covenant where there are no boundaries, where there are no bonds, where there are no governing lines, there is no sustainable relationship. You either have lawful order or there is perpetual false condemnation. 
unsatisfiable, insatiable grief, guilt, perpetual cries for justice for a remedy, but which never finds rest apart from God's law. And God's laws aren't burdensome. His yoke is easy. His yoke is far easier than anarchy. Jesus is the great law keeper and we in him have order and structure because we keep lawful company in the life of the Trinity. The community of the Trinity is sacrificial. It is lawful and it is unified. Last verse that I read at the beginning. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I want somebody to diagram that sentence. Some of you uh, children who are in English uh, or grammar, can you diagram that sentence? Can you write out that schematic on a piece of graph paper? Did you follow that? He who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We are in him. He's in us. The Spirit is in Jesus. We're in Jesus. Jesus is in the Father. We in Jesus are in the Father. There is this continual dance of mutual filling and indwelling and abiding in each other. The language of God being in and with us is grounded in the fact that the members of the Trinity are in and with one another. They are with one another. They are in one another. They possess union. And the way that they dwell and abide in and with each other is the way they abide and dwell with us. And this is how we relate to him. This is communion in the life of the Trinity. The promise of Jesus Christ is God with us, and the Spirit is the Spirit in us. It began as an eternal reality first, where they're all in eternity past, in and with one another, and then all of this is brought to us and promised to us, so that it should be as difficult to rip me apart from you as it is to rip the Spirit away from the Son or the Son away from the Father. That's how tight these bonds of unity are. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to be divided from you. I want unity and communion and fellowship with you. And you and I both know that the only place that's going to come, the only way we're going to have any sustainable expression of that unity is if we're both in the fellowship of the Trinity and submitted to God. No other way. There's no other community that has the power to keep us together. The community life of the triune God is the only sustainable life lawful, orderly, sacrificial, unified community. And know this, you become like the people you hang around. You reflect the community you keep. Do you want to reflect and imitate the life of the Trinity or the life of these other godless communities? In our digital world, in our entertainment world, it's a lot easier to keep bad community than ever before. It's a lot easier to make virtual connections with sons of Cain and the family of the devil and to associate with them than ever before. This happened in a really goofy way uh, last week to me the other night, and I have to confess it, that I uh, aligned just for a moment with the sons of Cain. Uh, Sarah and I were watching a movie about these guys. They were good guys, you know, good old boys, rednecks. You know, they're kind of funny. You got to like them. And then they started robbing banks. I thought, well, they got a good reason. I mean, you know, they got stuff to pay for. And, and then I'm pulling for these guys to get away from the sheriff and the sheriff not to catch them and the sheriff not to punish them because, you know, they're good boys, right? They're fine. And uh, Sarah said, what are you doing? <laughs> Those are, they're robbing banks. Why are you cheering for them? Why? Because I had been keeping bad company for a couple of hours. She corrected me and I had to shake it off. Whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm, that's right. I'm keeping bad company. 
Now, that's a silly example, but we all must be aware of all the company we keep that affects how we think, how we act, and how we feel. Bad company sets up idols and false promises. Good company, good friends will never lie to you. They won't manipulate you. They won't keep pulling the strings of your emotions, always keeping you in a state of outrage or terror. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit don't do that. It reminds me of something uh, Jesus said back in uh, Matthew 11. He said, but to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to, to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, he's a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Jesus called that generation. You're like children playing in the marketplace who play a little happy tune and you expect me to dance. And then you turn around and play a sad tune and you expect me to mourn. That's precise. If you feel jerked around by our society, that's exactly a description of what's going on. Here, let me play this tune for you. and You're supposed to celebrate this awful thing. Here, let me play this sad thing for you. And you're supposed to mourn this good thing. Over and over and over, we're being jerked. You don't have to play. You don't have to submit. You, you don't, you're not obligated to dance or to respond when they play the flute, when they play their tune. Good friends don't expect you to. Good company doesn't ask you to. Good friends don't lead you into destruction or violent behavior. Good friends keep covenant. Love God's law all the time without exception. We don't ever suspend God's law because we're angry or because there's something we want to get and the only way to get it is to is to disobey God's law. And that goes for all the branches of government and for the police and for the military and for the news media and all the people. But that requires somebody somewhere to actually know what God wants. That requires somebody somewhere to be biblically literate and to know what God requires. So good friends know God's laws. Knowing God's good law, we apply it equally across the board to everyone. There's no sainted class or race or nationality that gets a free pass from obeying God's commandments. Good friends know this and they don't excuse anyone's sin. Not yours, not their own. And they never say that you don't need to take responsibility for yourself because where you grew up or the color of your skin. They know that sin is sin and all men have fallen short of the glory of God. Good friends don't plot evil. They don't shed innocent blood and then as a distraction turn to damn you with vague accusations. Good company doesn't shame you into submission and conformity. Good friends don't weaponize their own disappointment against you as if they're the supreme lawgiver and you're to stand before their judgment seat. Once more, you become like the company you keep. The fellowship of the Trinity is known by sacrifice and lawfulness and unity. No other company, no other community will prosper. None of them can save you. None of them have the gospel. None of them have the cross. Beware of the community you keep. Embrace the life of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us yourself. We thank you for giving us your Son and your Spirit. We thank you for your reign over us. Father, cause us to submit more and more by your Spirit to your precepts, to your law, to your commandments, as we follow our Savior Jesus through the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.